and a one, and a two, and a one, two, three. Hello! Welcome to the House of Strauss. We are live, coming to you from my garage, trying to at least empathize with my guest, my frequent guest. <laughs> uh, just because I'm cold. It's cold in the garage, and you, sir, endured a cold defeat as a Packers fan at Lambeau Field. Incredible. Uh, I want to ask about that. <laughs> I want to ask about Rodgers. But I want to triumphantly say that I'm back from COVID, Ryan, and uh, it feels fantastic. How you doing? Congrats on the antibodies. I was there a month ago, and speaking of Green Bay, that was a society that was living in um, January 2020, just like packed bars, <laughs> uh, no masks, uh, very few masks, nobody taking your temperature at the door, let alone asking for a vax card or... Um, your identification other than to be 21 to get into a bar. Uh, they were just living a completely different society than Chicago three hours away. That is totally fascinating. And yes, I feel like I have the star, the invincibility star in Mario right now. It's a great <laughs> feeling. Um, I don't know how long it lasts. I haven't really looked into it. Uh, we might get into some of the opinions that people have, not even the opinions people have on this stuff, more how they are trying to stop other people from having opinions on it. But let's start with Aaron Rodgers. Today, I wrote an article, a post, if you will, on my Substack House of Strauss, made it free, trying to ease back in a little bit now that I'm back from quarantine and, you know, try to try to expand the base before ruthlessly paywalling uh, stuff in the future. And I mean, I, I said a few things, but I think I would distill it. I would distill it as this. I am much more compelled by Colin Cowherd's criticisms of Aaron Rodgers. Uh, I find them to be more incisive. I find them to be more credible because he's been saying it for a while uh, versus the rest of the media that adored Aaron Rodgers and now hates him. And I think if I had to really summarize, and I, I people argued and I, I've got smart readers and they, they had their variety of pushbacks, but I think I would, if I had to distill what I was saying, I would, I would do it this way. The, the final paragraph, and I, I want your take. It's all very narcissistic people, I have to say, and I apologize for that. Um, the sports media's loudest Rogers critique is that he's getting in the way of their messaging. Cowherd's main Rogers critique is that he's getting in the way of himself. The latter story is about the human condition. The former is an angry public service announcement. I know which one I'd rather listen to. That's what I'm saying. I like how Coward is looking at Rogers through the prism of the Packers, and the complications he poses for them as a prickly, intelligent, but aloof, disagreeable type. I feel like so much of the media and the sports media is just obsessed with him and this vaccine bullshit. And it's not entertaining and it's annoying. What say you to this? They are, but he's also been trolling them. Yes. And feel even like stronger about it. So he, he's waving the he's waving the red uh towel at the bull. And so just like as an example of this, like, you know, they're playing the 49ers, which is a team that previously to this past week has knocked Rogers out of the playoffs three times in the last decade. Um this was a team that passed over him first overall in the NFL draft. And he said, like, they, someone asked if he was, like, upset that they didn't pick him in the, in the draft. And he said, well, not as, like, much as they're going to regret not picking me. Yeah. And 
I mean, every time they played him in the playoffs, the opposite has been true. They're four and zero against him. I mean, I've been to games. I, did, I I saw games where Colin Kaepernick beat him twice, and so yeah. incredible uh, performance in one of them. Yeah, I went to the one in Lambo, which wasn't the incredible one, but nevertheless. Uh, so so he's got this game on the rise, and they're favored by I don't know five six points, depending on where you got the line and when in the week you got it, and. So that's not like they're not gigantic favorites, but during that week, he takes a half hour to speak to Kevin Van Valkenburg of ESPN to try and like rebut whatever points like he's going to make in a piece that Rogers thought was going to be a hit piece. So he goes after Biden, keeps talking about um, Joe Rogan, makes some decent points along the way. Yes. But why is he spending a half hour the week of a playoff game talking to a magazine writer and like railing about all this stuff. Wait three weeks until the season is definitely over and do it then. I granted yes. come out before that, but that piece had no material if he didn't talk for it. It wasn't a story. It had nothing new. And so, um, you know, it's a good story. And I don't think Rogers is like totally wrong in everything he said about it, but why is he spending that time doing that instead of like preparing for this game? Yeah. And it sends the message that it's all about me. I mean, there is a narcissism. It's why I do agree with a lot of the Colin Cowherd criticisms of Rogers. Um, And sometimes it's almost frustrating because I like a lot of the trolling he's doing of the media. I think the media deserves it in many respects, but I also recognize that he's a flawed guy and he's not necessarily the best messenger. And unfortunately, as so many people do when they wind up in controversies, they just get up in their own head and they're constantly battling back and you can't win the battle. You just can't. You if can't you're going to do what he's doing, you have to go out and dominate. And I get he's probably the MVP of the regular season, but no one cares. Like at this point, he has to at least he hasn't even gotten to a second Super Bowl, let alone one one. And yeah. you know, I'm I'm sitting here like on my couch. I'm I'm not I'm, I'm not like nearly as spectacular a human as he is in my chosen profession. Uh, so I'm like, you know giving him very high standards that he has to live up to that I probably don't live up to myself. Um, but at the same time, it, it's just like, you know, I, I'm emotionally invested in that franchise and it, it's been, I've gone to Green Bay four times now to see him not play his best capable game at the most important time and had a very like miserable drive home <laughs> either that night or the next day. <laughs> so uh, what is that I, like, I, by I the way, way. I, I, I know people calling in and by all means queue up. If you ever want to ask a question as we talk, uh, I know they probably are more interested in what's going on in the sports and in the culture, but I'm just curious. What's the vibe like in Lambo when it is that cold and people are that drunk and the disappointment comes that suddenly? The cold was not uncomfortable. Uh, mm. the, the, so they play it up on TV and it's cold compared to the rest of the country, but it was not an atypically cold Wisconsin January day. 
and people who live or travel to Wisconsin spend a lot of time outside in the winter. They go snowmobiling, they go ice fishing. You, you just wear a lot of layers and it's not, the coldness itself isn't miserable. And then the other thing is, is that it was like a very jubilant scene in that stadium until there were four minutes left because they were always up yeah. by a touchdown. And so oh, like the, the, the until the punt drive, got blocked. The, the dominant first drive, what were you thinking? <laughs> well, you know, they, the you, I, I actually know as a football fan, you can't read too much into the first drive because that's the drive that is like totally scripted in practice. Mm. And a first touch, a first drive touchdown is like very common and you, you really can't read into it. I was feeling good about the team the whole game. Even when the block punt touchdown happened, I was like, okay, great. Now the Packers have four minutes to run this clock out and score at the end. Like I was not considering a scenario where they went three and out after that. And so um, I, I I get that this is probably like boring some people, but the, the scene was like really deflated walking out because um, it wasn't anything that you really could have prepared for. They were controlling the game. The 49ers hadn't reached the end zone. And so you, it just um, is aggravating, but you know, everybody walks out and I think that they're, maybe it was just me, but I felt a collective, you know, aura that this was the end of Rogers' tenure in Green Bay. Yeah. I, I think that there's something to it. I would be surprised if it went a different way. And I think to what you're saying, there is randomness in sports. Um, I agree. If he's talking all this, he's talking all this stuff, if he's calling ESPN right before the game, you got to dominate. You got to win. Um, but then again, it is funny. There is so much randomness. If it just goes a little bit this way, a little bit that way. I mean, there are a couple plays in that game that determine the outcome. I think there. Yeah, the block st- field goal, the block punt. The the other thing that like hasn't been discussed enough is uh, AJ Dillon, their running back, getting hurt. Like they drafted this guy when they already had a really good running back and the reason they drafted him were for freezing games like this, where when you're like tackling a refrigerator, it just wears you down. And like when that, when he went down with a chest injury, that's when their offense really just stopped doing anything. Yeah. And there are other plays too, where I wouldn't have even blamed Rogers. There was one where he got sacked by Armstead, uh, where there was a tight end in the flats, and that was just going to be a big gain that probably I think would have really put it away or helped salt it away for the Packers. But that's why people watch. It was a dominant football weekend. We can maybe discuss that and discuss the just absolute crusher of uh, of a weekend that the NFL had and whether the NFL is doing anything to make this happen or if they're just the luckiest league in the world but I want to take a, a have question to talk from... about how they do stuff to make it happen yeah well let me take a question from Scott though make him the next caller get a little bit of audience participation Scott's a superstar on these hey Scott how you doing hey doing well uh, thanks guys hey Ryan I know you saw it because I saw you tweeted about it uh, just curious to get your guys' take on the whole Deadspin Mike McDaniel thing. <laughs> it feels like it's just almost too rich. Like, I, like 
it was hilarious, but it's almost just too perfect that I'm like, I, I can't even laugh at this point. I, I don't know. But just curious. Yeah. Well, talk maybe about the like, facts or do you want me to, Ethan? Yeah, I, I think you're better at expository. And I was thinking about marinating in, in Rogersville, but this topic is rather juicy and absurd. And it does. I, I feel the way Scott does of, am I being tricked? Am I being lured? Is this a prank? But Ryan, uh, can you give us the expository? Okay, so Deadspin, which is like not the Deadspin of old, basically, um, th- this company bought Deadspin, I don't even know how many years ago, several years ago, um, and then the other like old zombie gawker sites, uh, the the original Deadspin cast or whatever, like, I don't know, I don't love them either, but they, they weren't this dumb. Uh, they They got into a spat with management, they all walked out. And instead of shuttering the site, the company rebuilt it with new dumber writers. And <laughs> so, um, they're, they're like, if you want to like draw like a caricature of like wokeism, it's this site. Like they don't have anything like smart to say. They just throw rocks and don't make you think. And so, that with that as the backdrop, they wrote a, a story. I guess over the weekend. So Mike McDaniel is the 49ers offensive coordinator. I actually hadn't heard any chatter about him being involved in any head coaching searches. Maybe he was, but I hadn't noticed any of it. But I guess they like were up in arms that he was even getting mentioned as somebody who could be a head coach. And so they wrote a headline, sure, Mike McDaniel seems cool, but he's not worthy of a head coaching gig yet. And then the um, subheadline of that was, please stop and think before you inadvertently dub another young white guy as the next hot <laughs> coaching prospect. Um, and then, you know, do the record scratch like 30 minutes later or however long later. I don't know. Editors note that they attached to the story. We learned after the publication of this article that 49ers offensive coordinator Mike McDaniel, whom we describe as a, quote, white guy, is in fact biracial. The article's original text remains below. We regret the error. And the whole article was about how he didn't deserve it's, a job. It's amazing. He's like an unqualified white guy. And it, so... Um, <laughs> You know, if this wasn't something that was, like, hidden. Like, granted, he is, like, light-skinned biracial, but he's spoken in the interview, in interviews in the past, like, by a simple Google search of having a black father. They also, like, attack, like, Ryan Clark for, like, complimenting him. Ryan Clark's an old Steelers defensive back who's now an analyst on ESPN and I guess he had praised him or something and they... Are we, are we sure it was he, Ryan Clark? I'm trying to remember. I, I think it might have been... I mean, I, I feel like... Clark. Well, he... It, or the, someone. The, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe well, it was the, What was interesting is, hey, I think we're permitted to be extemporaneously lazy. Uh, what was amazing about the article is that the person who referenced the, the guy praising him said that they basically had never heard him, heard of him and couldn't be bothered to look him up. I mean, th- this is like a crazy thing to do in an article. You can just look it up. It's, it's your, your writing. You have Google. It was almost performatively glib uh, in a way that I, I, I initially felt like, hey, I don't want to pile on whoever this writer is. But by the time I was done, I just thought, 
you really shouldn't have a job in this industry. I, I hate to say it that way, but it, it does feel that way when I read through how glibly lazy it was. I came so close to like making a lazy mistake um, yesterday. <laughs> I almost don't want to. Uh, <laughs> well, that's the thing. There's a bit of there, but for the grace of God, go I. I Look, people can reform. People can do better. People can change. I'm not saying, you know, banish this individual from the industry. I don't even know who the person who the person is, but I'm just saying right that I've previously been familiar with. Yeah, exactly. And it's we're not just naming that, it frankly because I don't remember who he is. But um, <laughs> we're we're doing we're doing a big up job here. Um, yeah. So uh, Andrew ha- Andrew Hawkins called McDaniel. Yeah, my phone, he, not Ryan Clark. It was yeah, another and, ESPN analyst. Andrew Hawkins right. called Mike McDaniel the most brilliant football mind, and this writer. Um, said Beckwith. It says, I don't even, you know, I don't know who Andrew Hawkins is or how much weight should be put behind him saying, I promise you there's not a brighter football mind in the league. But it says a lot about the power of internet groupthink that a black guy with a call for justice shouldn't warrant an apology on his profile backdrop would tweet a statement like that. I mean, you can, you can just look up who Andrew Hawkins is. That's a very strange, just very odd. One of those things where... Here's the thing. If we're, if we're going to try to broaden this out, I would like to say this is about Deadspin being zombie Deadspin and uh, being a joke and it all being about these niche corners of the internet where people say goofy stuff and they don't put a lot of effort into it. I wish I could just think this about this issue. Unfortunately, I do think it's illustrative of an increasingly popular way of thinking in educated America, um, in the media especially, in the university system, to the degree, to the point where Biden is saying, I am going to appoint specifically a black female justice of the Supreme Court before even knowing who he's going to appoint, right? This is common. It's It feels almost normal at this point. It is recent, this mentality of we are going to foreground your census categories and make that disqualifying or make that qualifying. I don't think people like it. I don't think people like it because it's it's ugly. It's in this instance, it's dehumanizing. It's anti-curiosity. Um, it's anti-intellectual. You look at Mike McDaniel. He's not even a person to this writer. He's just a white guy. That's the only thing that he is to this writer. Right. And, and only part of his identity that matters. Yeah. And I enjoy the Mike McDaniel interviews. I don't know if he'll be a good coach. Maybe he's ever hired as a head coach, but he's an interesting guy. He has that weird surfer sort of persona. He's a millennial and that's, that's intriguing, but he's also very smart when he talks about football and says things that didn't occur to me. And so it's a little fun to go down a Mike McDaniel rabbit hole and get all that information. And it doesn't matter to me what his ethnicity is. He's just an interesting guy. And so the way people are approaching this, I think, is not good. Not good for, I guess, morally not good, first of all. And just as a practical matter, not good. Even if their intentions are good, and even if they think that they are I don't know, um, restoring justice based on past wrongs. It's a mentality that I find to be fairly ugly. Yeah, I don't have much to add to that other than uh, it's a little bit of like a personal issue for me because my... I was going to say, you say, you spared me having to raise that as awkwardly as possible, but say it. 
Uh, so, so my kids are mixed race, and I always have to think about um, kind of how they're going to go through life with um, just not just their own identity, but the way that um, external factors like apply identities to them, like in this case. And so, uh, I don't know. I, I don't have a. Good well, I mean, I'm scouting them for a future NFL coaching gig, specifically on the basis of what you told me. Uh, no, it's it's crazy. It's crazy that people, I guess, are are putting all that thought into it. I think it's a little bit. Crazy. And it's like, would, would, that, would my daughters qualify for um, for Joe Biden's uh, Supreme Court candidacy or not? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it's not. I don't think it's where we want to be. But let's let's make the argument. Let's try to let's try to make the argument from the perspective. Let's do the, the, they call it a steel man instead of a straw man, right? Of making the best possible counter argument. It is weird. What, what is it? Two? Is there, are there two black coaches in the NFL? What, what is it right now? Um, I, something minuscule, right? Is it yeah, two? Yeah, very low. Yes. So two, two black coaches <laughs> in the NFL. I think we can say that is a surprisingly low number, um, it, it, considering all the black people involved in football in America. I know that. They're not just drawing from the playing ranks and it's a mostly black league, but, you know, a lot of black people involved in football in the United States. And so I can understand people saying, how are there only two black coaches? This has been uh, an area of focus. They have the Rooney rule, which I find to be weird um, and not a good idea, but they have the Rooney rule where you have to uh, interview a minority candidate whenever you're uh, interviewing for a new coaching spot. It doesn't seem to result in a diversity of actual hiring. So you wonder what the point of it all is. But I can understand somebody having that perspective and saying something needs to be done. There needs to be a focus. This is what has to happen. But part of the problem is it's so undefined. I mean, nobody who has this perspective, or at least very few, say it needs to be X amount of people. Like that doesn't happen. It needs to be X percentage, right? That, right. That's not really what is said. And there's not an acknowledgement that there are just different uh, averages in terms of uh, like participation of what people want to do. It's never just equal in terms of what jobs and roles people go into. And so this is all very uncomfortable. I think people understand it at some level, but it's just not worth it in media to push back when this talk gets going, that it's got to be this person. And I, what I find fascinating about it, it really does seem to be more girded in a university ideology of how uh, there are marginalized groups that we need to service against the uh, the privileged groups than it is about anything regarding uh, the representation of people within a sports league. Why do I say that? I say it because I see so many people um, in media on NBA Twitter when Becky Hammond was uh, an assistant coach with the San Antonio Spurs who were pushing Becky Hammond as a head coach and see, saying that it needs to happen. There, there aren't any female basketball players or, you know, to be more specific, white, blonde, female basketball players in the NBA. Uh, so in that case, it's not about representing the league. That's not what they're talking about. It's just the sense of this needs to be done as this person's been shut out. Incidentally, with Becky Hammond, she wasn't very good. I know that might, I don't know, be controversial to say, but I would talk to people with the Spurs. I would talk to people in the league. And so it was fascinating to watch this play out, Ryan, where 
you talk to people in the league, they don't think she's awful, to be to be clear. Not not that she's like totally incompetent, but there are people who can do something for you functionally on a coaching staff that are not head coaching material. I'm not saying that's my opinion of her. I'm saying that's the league's opinion on her. And if it wasn't, then she would be the head coach of a team. So that's that was what the opinion was, but nobody wanted to say it. Um, and yet you had all these people pushing it like it had to happen. And the crazy thing to me, Ryan, is how confident people are who are so divorced from the action and from the internal machinations of knowing who should be the coach of a team just based on census category. Is that something that, that that's surprising to you where people get so opinionated on who should or shouldn't be a coach? Well, there are people who, to be fair, who are plugged in that pushed her as well. It's not like it was only an outsider class. And I think that in many ways, the outsider class felt like emboldened by many of the insiders who are pushing for her. You do, yeah. do you think I think so, but I'm not totally sure which of the insiders are pushing I don't for her. I don't know off the top of my head either. If I, if I had kind of researched this, but, uh, maybe I would have come but, up with But to what you're saying, the absence of pushback is regarded as tacit agreement, right? So if nobody among the insiders is pushing back, then the outsiders are going to keep pushing because nobody is saying, hey, you might you might have backed the wrong horse here. You know, this might not be the one. Um, and indeed with Hammond, there were uh, female coaching prospects who were thought Wouldn't to be better. Tacit? If there's a woman head coach in the NFL before the NBA, I mean that. I mean, it sounds like a it sounds like a 1990s movie is what it sounds like. And there's one that several, I would, uh, I mean, there's several women coaches that are moving up the ranks in the NFL. Like there's one on the Bucks. There's one on Washington football team. Um, it's not out of the question that it could happen there first. Yeah, I, I I don't know. I mean, do they get a Rooney rule? I mean, I have no idea. These are things I don't know. But Scott, I think you're you're still on the call. Is there anything else? Anything you want to follow up with, or should yeah, we take? Yeah, I, I mean, that yeah. was exactly the discussion I was looking for. I guess to to kind of dig in more there, like in terms of representation, probably racial being the more relevant one. Like, do you think that for coaches specifically, do you think that? It needs to, or the thinking is that it should reflect the composition of the players in the league, like just national representation. Well, I mean, if it was national, then the right number would be like three to four. And we've had that and that wasn't satisfactory. So at very least to satisfy them has to be somewhere in between. Um, Now, like the, the weird thing is, is that you don't see anybody really pushing for there to be more Asian or Hispanic head coaches. Like if it was comprised of like the, the national population, then there should be like six Hispanic head coaches in the NFL. And there's only ever been one that I know, one or two um, that I know of. And so that there was that, the one who just old chargers or Raiders coach who just made the all fame. And then there's Ron Rivera. So there's two that I know of, but um that for whatever reason there it doesn't and that this is also like the case in sports television like there are you would have no idea that hispanics make up nearly like a fifth of the country by watching like espn or fox sports or cbs or nbc there's basically like dan levitard george sedano 
and maybe you can, I don't think you can even count all of them on like two hands. And so they're like dramatically underrepresented in the media. And that's not something for whatever reason that we hear about nearly as much. Yeah, uh, we don't. I would tack on one uh, perhaps goofy theory. I wonder if the pressure on teams that fire coaches uh, creates these counterproductive incentives. Um, I, I, because what I've noticed as just a casual football observer is that you're far more likely to get ripped to shreds in media on ESPN firing a black coach than not hiring a black coach. So what are the incentives when you look at that? I mean, it's a, it's a perverse incentive. It's, it's almost a paradox. But with the media seeming to badly want the, uh, the, co- the composition changed, they're almost creating the conditions where I do wonder if some of these teams look at it and go, well, this is what gets me on the PTI scroll in a bad way. It's when I, I fire Flores, who I think it seemed like that one was a surprising one. He had, he had, won, uh, he had won a few games. And uh, is it Cully? Is that how you pronounce the other one? But the yeah. Texans? Um, you know, that's, I, I saw Wilbon ripping the Texans for that. And again, I'm a very casual observer. Maybe Cully didn't get a proper shot, but I believe that the Texans were something like uh, four and thirteen this season. I mean, I, I rooted for the San Diego Chargers and Marty Schottenheimer. I think he got fired after going fourteen and two. If Bill Belichick went uh, four and thirteen, I wouldn't be shocked if he got fired. You, you wouldn't even know that from Wilbon ripping in to the Texans and the way that he was doing it. So they have, I they want- have a very untalented roster. Yeah, uh, I mean, I'm, I, I'm sure there are reasons. I'm sure there. Are, yeah, I'm, I'm not saying that Cully deserves it. I'm just saying that guys get fired in the NFL. Coaches get fired. That's what right, happens. and it, it, it's not just performance. I think there were there were stories that came out with both of them that they had like friction with the front office or whatever. And it's like weird because we didn't hear anything. You know, the NFL is like more covered than any other entity, and we didn't hear anything about that friction. Yeah. until after they were gone. It's like well, kind they, of funny the how that works. Needed to, because this is, goes to my theory. I think the teams felt like they needed to justify the decision versus in other instances where they just do it. So I wonder if the media, by wanting this to happen so badly, are creating the conditions by which teams... It wouldn't make it right or moral, by the way, if teams were avoiding doing this because of it. I'm just speaking to the incentives of it. I, I just wonder if that is possible. Uh, I don't know. It, it could be. I wouldn't rule it out. But, you know, I think it, it, may, it may factor in. It may not. Um, I'm going to, to use a football analogy, I'm going to punt. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know either. It was just a thought that crossed my mind of how this can be, um, you know, accidentally creating the opposite conditions. But, yeah. Do we want to talk about football? Do we want to talk about what they did, why they're so dominant? I know there were some eye-popping numbers. I know that some of it is boosted by the new counting system. So it's a little inaccurate to say that was the most watched divisional weekend of all time. Um, but I'm wondering, Ryan, do you think the NFL put themselves in this position to have that incredible weekend that was watched at a peak audience of over 50 million people uh, during that Chiefs-Bills game? Or they're just getting the luck of the draw and the other sports haven't been as lucky? Uh, well, 
it's not just luck of the draw. I really do think that games are officiated with, you know, in baseball, they say tie goes to the runner. In the NFL, with all of these, like, type of, like, 50-50 calls, if you watch it closely enough, it often seems like the tie goes to what will make the game more compelling. <laughs> and so th- I didn't notice any of that this week. There was, like, some light review that, like, took too long at the end of the game for how obvious the call was. I don't remember what it was. I remember thinking at the time that this is taking so long that they so that they can goose the average minute audience. Uh, but because, like, the, the way that this stuff gets counted, we've talked about this before, but... Um, when, when, when you hear that, uh, Packers 49ers got like 39.6 million viewers or whatever it was, um, that's the average minute audience. So when people are watching at the end of the games, because it's close and and more casuals jump into the boat, um, that boosts the total viewership for the whole game. And so I really do like close games, big quarterbacks, uh, legendary like franchises, all of these things are factors that um, go into the rating because diehards are going to watch no matter what, and it rises and falls on the margins with like casuals who will tune in maybe just for the fourth quarter if they find out on social media that it's close or something. And so I really do think that the NFL has a strategy where – like and, and they they have so much of the officiating now can be like ruled from central HQ that they definitely goose it to make the games as compelling as possible late. Now sometimes you're gonna get these blowouts where like Troy Aikman is complaining about having Bucks Eagles instead of the Cowboys game the next day. But um usually I, the NFL just seems to have a formula where a lot of these games come down to the wire and all four of these games literally came down to the final play. Yeah. I think perverse incentives are the theme of the show as far as I'm concerned, because the extending of games with a bunch of reviews and everything else, especially in basketball, I think makes for a worse entertainment experience, but at the same time boosts your rating. And that's ultimately what the leagues uh, care about. Let's take a question from you, Yang. I know he likes the TV talk, not sure what he's got in store for us. I'm going to make him the next caller uh, before we, I think before we attack this hey. whole Neil Young what? situation. But Yu Yang, what's up? Ooh, Neil Young, Neil from Canada. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, th- thanks, guys. I do love the, the TV topics, um, but I actually had something that I want to talk to you guys that you guys both wrote about uh, recently. Uh, I know um, mm. Ryan wrote oh. like a, sh- a, sh- a short article about the, um, the, the comment about the Uyghurs. Uh, by the by the minority warriors owner, I think two percent, right? And I can't pronounce his name, so I'm yeah. not going to try. Um, but come uh, say come off, come off. All right, I, I can do that. Uh, I can, and I want to be respectful too, you know. So I don't want to butcher it. Um, I, I do but, too. You know, Let what? me tell you, I I did a, a narration of that, and I was really struggling on the last name. <laughs> there were a lot of outtakes, but you were saying we we also did talk about this last week. Right mm-hmm. last week, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But what what's your question about it specifically? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, what I, do you want to hear? I, I do have a kind of a, a question, um, but I, I just want to kind of you know expand upon it a little bit. And you know, if you, if you got to cut me off, of course, right? Uh, this is not my show. 
Um, but um, you know, that comment made me start, uh, made me think about a couple of things. The one, the first one is that mm. I personally also don't care about the Uyghurs, and it sounds harsh, but I'll put it uh, put it like this, right? Like I kind of think of the Uyghurs kind of like the North Koreans. I feel really, really bad for them, and I have so much sympathy, mm. but I don't really care about them. That, that I think that's a difference, you know. Um, and then uh, my, it made me think about another point, actually, which is what I really want to talk about, which is that um, the differences between differences between China and America. And I think one of the, the key differences I see is that in America, it, it, they have, there's something uh, that I think is called um, a covert corruption, or it's 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 under the table. Whereas in China, they have overt corruption. And I'm kind of giving an example, right? Like, uh, let's look at President Obama, right? I've heard that President Obama is worth like hundreds of millions of dollars, possibly even a billion dollars, right? And to me, yes. that, right, right? So to me, when I see that, um, I can only speculate that he got that money, most of it through corruption, right? But I think, I still think it's a good thing that he got that money, and I'll explain why, okay? Because had Obama not gotten that money through um, covert corruption, which is the American version, then he would be even more corrupt, and he would need, he would get power from other means. So in this case, mm. Obama got his money, he got rich, and he's worth he, to me the work that he did for America is worth hundreds of millions of dollars, even if he got it through corrupt means. Whereas in China, it's done very uh, overtly. So like in China, um, uh, recently, like ten years ago, when the president Xi became president, he literally um, executed people that he said he said were corrupt, which is ironic, of course, right? But he, he, he grouped up all yes. these kind of people in the government that said, you're, you're the corrupt ones and we're going to execute you, at least the top ones. So that's my question to you guys. Do, do, do you think I have a point there that this kind of um, covert corruption is beneficial because, you know, if, if, if Obama doesn't get paid in cash, he's going to get it's, um, used other corruption. It's the, methadone, it's the methadone versus the fentanyl. It's the lesser <laughs> of the evils. I mean, possibly. I haven't thought about it. I I don't know much about how Obama got his money. He is a best-selling author, so presumably uh, a lot of money comes through that. But who knows? I think that is a problem in American politics. I, I don't uh, think you get hundreds of millions of dollars no. from a book in this day and age. No. And it's, um, yeah, I mean, be- they've got all sorts of different kind of business ventures that they have a hand in. And I mean, so what you could say, though, is... We had this global financial crisis and none of the the bankers and financiers responsible for it got really meaningfully prosecuted um, at the time that he was in charge and like really supposed to be cleaning that up. And to Yu Yang's point, I don't think like it takes Sherlock Holmes to wonder if there wasn't like some quid pro quo yeah. between all of this, like these like wealthy people who got away with breaking the world and then Obama accumulating this massive personal wealth after he left office. So, I mean, I don't think there's really much of a question that that had to work itself out in some way. I guess the question is whether that's worse or better than the type of corruption in China. I, and so, I don't, yeah, no, I don't want to cut you off. I, I, I just, it's one of those similar to when I was asking if there was uh, perverse incentives with the media and the hiring of black coaches. I don't really have a take on it. It's an interesting idea. 
I don't really have a take on it, but do you have a take on it, Ryan? Uh, well, I'd say that. Do you have an overt you, take or a covert take? <laughs> you, you know, like our, our least corrupt um, former president, Jimmy Carter, was probably like the, the worst president that a lot of people I wasn't alive for him, but a lot of people that we know can remember at least until our current one and our one before this one. Um, so I don't know. It's, it's tricky to say. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't have an opinion. I I have to think think about it more, but it's a very interesting question. I I, want to address something you Yang said earlier though, because it was controversial but I also think it was honest and I think it was an interesting analogy to draw to North Korea where you want the best for a people. Um, but it would be lying to pretend that their suffering is occupying your mind's eye all the time. And I think the question here is if something can be done about it, I think that's the big, that's the big thing. Well, basically, the- you know what, what can be done about it from my perspective? Like, so I, I you, I believe you're Jewish as well, but just from like learning about the Holocaust so much, I really do try to um, think about and I do whatever little I can um, in support of oppressed people. And what I do is I cover it in an outlet that has very wide distribution. And mm. I try like, you know, there's so many, you have to make decisions all the time. Do I want to cover this or not? And what I've tried to make a conscious decision to do, and not like calling myself a hero by any means, but like when one of these stories comes up, I generally try to tackle it and shine a light on it in the hopes that more knowledge of it um, eventually leads to people doing something about it. And I, to his credit, and this was what they were talking about when um, Kamath went on the like infamous rant, uh, President Biden did enact, like he did sign a bill into law that banned imports from the Xinjiang region. I don't know if I said that right, but from that region where um, they're held in concentration camps, um, he banned imports from that region unless it can be proven that the goods were not manufactured with slave labor. And I feel like that happened, um, not just like, I mean, think about how many different oppressed people there are in different pockets of the world that had to have happened because of people who were like covering it and drawing attention to it. And so I just hope that when I do that and when it intersects with sports, which is my beat, it can like be like kind of like a small part of a snowball getting the ball rolling of the world like fixing wrongs. Yeah, I don't well, know you, if that's you, too you idealistic never, or what? No, well, you never know, right? You never know where a point that you raise, uh, an article that you put out there, you, you just never know where it might lead. This is a more prosaic example, but. I, I remember, and not a lofty example, but I remember Quentin Tarantino, and this is going to be a good segue to our next topic, talking on Joe Rogan's podcast about why did he cast John Travolta in Pulp Fiction? John Travolta's career was finished. He was a young director. The studio didn't want anything to do with Travolta. They wouldn't listen to Quentin Tarantino. He didn't have the power. But Quentin Tarantino read an interview with Pauline Kael, 
the great New Yorker critic of movies. And Kale answered affirmatively that the movies needed John Travolta again. And that, in Quentin Tarantino's mind, was all the confidence he needed. He knew that Pauline Kale was on his side. And that was the sword that he used when he fought with the studio. He fought him tooth and nail. And it helped make Pulp Fiction a classic, revitalize Travolta's career. I think you could even say change the culture of the 1990s. Obviously, that's not a big issue. That's not uh, humanitarianism. But it's just an example of how Pauline Kael didn't know what she said would have any effect in that interview. You never know. So it's worth it, to be honest. It's worth it to explain a situation as you see fit, especially if other people are not. And you just never know where it might lead. Uh, but speaking of Joe Rogan, Ryan, and we'll say goodbye <laughs> to Yang and thanks for the questions. Uh, and by the way, if anybody else wants to uh, get on and, and ask any, by all means, uh, you wanted to talk Neil Young, Joe Rogan. Uh, it's not a sports topic, folks, but I'm interested as well. I also want to discuss this. Yeah, yeah so um, I guess I should... This is very, like, distant, but I should disclose that a close friend of mine, his brother is married to Neil Young's daughter, so I met Neil, wow. like, twice. Um, but I don't, I'm not totally on his side on this issue. Um, <laughs> he, I, I'm not, like, going to rip him or, like, say that he should be banned from stuff or whatever, but... Um, so basically, Joe Rogan had this guy, Dr. Robert Malone, on his podcast. I don't listen to the Joe Rogan podcast, at least not in anything more than like clips that get shared around. Uh, I, I just don't have the time to listen to three-hour podcasts. But he, uh, I guess this doctor is a guy who has like expressed extreme skepticism in the COVID-19 vaccines. He believes that like the media and the government are, are colluding with big pharma, which like underwrites a lot of them with like lobbying or inter uh, with relation to the government or sponsorship with relation to all of these media outlets. And so he doesn't believe that this vaccine's side effects are getting nearly enough attention relative to the like cudgel that everybody is using to like tell everybody to take them. And yeah. uh, he's not going to get any real counter argument from me. I've said before, like, I just don't care what like anybody basically says about um, science or vaccines or anything. Like, it just, it's, that doesn't rate that doesn't make no. the line of things it's, it's, be, it's below my line it's below it? my line um <laughs> but anyways like obviously a lot of people have been up in arms over joe rogan and his stance on the vaccine he's a lightning rod on this topic my like whole sense on um on censorship though like so neil young basically told spotify hey you either need to take him off your platform or you need to take me off your platform and spotify decided today to remove neil young's music from their platform and so he uh made an ultimatum and they they chose the other side which is like it's a kind of interesting business um, situation from Spotify because they've made all of their money really through the streaming of music, but they paid 
Joe Rogan a boatload of money to bring his audience over and a, a number of other people, including like Kim Kardashian and I think Obama as a podcast on Spotify with Bruce Springsteen, if I'm not mistaken. But um, so there's some where some more of his money's coming from. But the they they're really trying to grow in in spoken word, and that creates uh, clearly some polarizing situations. But my whole thing on censorship is that I don't think it's effective. Like, first of all, I don't like the idea of one group in power silencing any dissent. Uh, just inherently, I don't like the idea of that, even if this dissent might be like wrong. Like, let's say Rogan and Dr. Malone are like totally wrong on the uh, vaccine. I still don't like the idea of silencing wrong, unpopular views because I, I believe a certain quarterback uh, once said, when in the course of human history has the side that's doing the censoring and try to shut people up and make them show papers and marginalize part of the community ever been the correct side. I might have written down that Aaron Rodgers quote in case we had to talk about it. But continue, Ryan. <laughs> uh, he, he, he may or may not have said that in a story that he shouldn't have been participating. <laughs> he, he, might, he may or may not have said that, that very good point in a story he should not have been involved in the night before a playoff game. But continue. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I, I don't believe like in, in censorship – Morally, I also don't believe that it would in any way be effective to censor Rogan um, because Spotify brought him over there because he had an enormous audience. Like if they take him off of Spotify, the people are going to follow him somewhere else. You're really just playing whack-a-mole with platforms. He's not going to be totally canceled. There's always going to be a market for him and that drives people absolutely fucking crazy. But, um, he, he's real, like, I, he's not Alex Jones. He's much more popular. And, Oh, and he, he has on people who disagree with him. Like Josh Zepps, uh, was pushing. Right, back. That's the thing is he would have probably been very happy to speak to Neil Young for hours and air out their disagreement and let Young make whatever points he wanted to about thinking Rogan was wrong. Um, it, so I don't know. I, I, I respect people more when they're willing to debate their ideas with people who disagree to your point. Um, yeah. as we agree with each other on most of the things we discuss. Yeah, we, we but, do. Well, we, we have slight disagreements here. One is that I do listen to the Joe Rogan podcast, not, uh, every episode, not in its totality, but it is, I'm going to admit it right here. It is the primary reason I pay for Spotify. Occasionally, there is a Joe Rogan podcast that I want to listen to, and there are other songs I have access to, and that's all great and good. But I think that is the reason that I pay for Spotify. And if Joe Rogan was banned from Spotify, I would stop paying for Spotify. I wouldn't make a big thing of it. I wouldn't make a big, like, I'm taking my business elsewhere kind of tweet, but that's just, that's the decision that I would make. And... I also, I dislike the use of the term misinformation and disinformation. I saw it in Neil Young's statement. It's become this term, this new term that midwits use to just convey that something makes them feel icky without outright calling it a lie or actually de demonstrating its falseness. Uh, problematic 
was a term before that. You see it everywhere. It's this sense of we need to stop misinformation, misinformation, misinformation. Uh, sometimes they mean a lie. And sometimes they just mean something they don't like. It's a term that I'm not in favor of. And yes, I agree with you on this on this issue. I can't speak to anything that Robert Malone is saying. I can't speak to uh, Joe Rogan's takes on myocarditis or, or any of this. But I don't like a worldview that says, I'm not going to make a better point. I'm not going to demonstrate the truth of something. I'm just going to prevent my enemies from communicating to the public. I, I don't think that's good. And I this don't whole- think it's effective either because he has this audience that he's influential with. And let's say Spotify had decided to kick him off. Well, do you think that this audience would be like, okay, I come around. The vaccine is great. Give me the jab now. Like if you're, (laughs) if you're trying to convince a group of like skeptical people, I don't think that writing them off and marginalizing and banishing them is the most effective way to ultimately bring them to your side. Um, Uh I, I disagree with you here. I do think at a certain level, censorship is effective, and that's scary, right? I don't think I, where I agree with you is at the level it's at right now, Rogan would find another way to do it, and it wouldn't be effective. But if this is just an onward march, eventually, I do think it would be difficult um, to just communicate, and whoever had the ability to do so could in a way define reality. I think we have seen societies where that happens and eventually it breaks so down. If he, yeah. if he like announced he was going to like a street corner in Las Vegas with a megaphone, he'd draw an audience there. He doesn't need yeah. digital distribution. Like he's, he's interesting enough that the media would amplify anything. That okay. He- but let's, but let's, let's maybe it's reductio ad absurdum. Is it absurdum or absurdism? I don't know, but let's say, Okay, let's say it's a collective ban like Trump, right? No yeah. Spotify, no Facebook, no Twitter, no YouTube, no social media, uh, iTunes, no. You know, at a certain point, if these organizations get together and do it, then yeah, you just wouldn't, you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have them there but anymore. Trump is still yeah. probably the betting favorite to be the Republican party candidate for president in 2024 though. Like, so even with all of like all of big tech colluding to silence him, he's still probably going to be the presidential candidate again. Yeah. I mean, I agree with you that right now it's not going to be effective. I just worry that we're almost presenting it to these tech companies like a challenge. <laughs> it's like that, you know, a challenge where they can maybe yeah, but make Spotify is different because yeah. it's a Swedish company. They don't care about backlash in like the American media. Now maybe they would care if like whoever runs their back end, like if Amazon, let's say like they run a bunch of stuff through Amazon web services and they get cut off from that and they can't distribute anything anymore, then they might care. But in terms of just like people complaining about them, that isn't something that reaches their level. Yeah. Well, I think it's also, it's almost two different conversations. One is, do the ideas die with him if you purge him in that coordinated way? 
Um, and the other is, can you purge him in that coordinated way? And those are two, those are two different things. Sort of both of them is no. Yeah. I mean, I think for now, for now, I agree with you, but I, I do think censorship happens for a reason. Uh, It's not done. It's not done for no reason. And it's difficult to control information flow. So sometimes it backfires, but ultimately I just, I favor, I know you're not even supposed to talk like this in media anymore. I like free speech. I like the exchange of ideas. I think we get the best running society when everybody feels compelled to say their honest opinion and we can turn it into a wisdom of crowds. And beyond that, I am so against this current orthodoxy uh, among many in media and in university professions where you don't trust the public. You're paternalistic. You think they're idiots. You think they're going to elect the wrong people. So they need to have all this misinformation hidden from them. I favor the perspective of you can convey anything if it's true. Richard Feynman said, the great physicist on the Manhattan Project, he said that if you cannot explain something simply, then you do not understand it. He demonstrated how the Challenger mission exploded using a paper cup in a press conference and made it completely digestible. So I just think it's a bluff. I think that a lot of people in these professions are trying to just attack their enemies, uh, perhaps obscure their own lack of expertise despite being experts, um, and just acting out of a sense of, again, neurotic paternalism uh, rather than just having a healthier conversation for the country. So that is my, my take. And so much of like the accepted science has changed over the course that uh, that people have been speaking so surely about it. Like, for example, like Fauci, Biden, Rachel Maddow all said, if you take the vaccine, you're not going to get or spread COVID. We've seen clearly that that was not accurate um, and may or may not have been the truth at the time that they were saying it. Um, we, the, the, we, the, there was like a doctor who went on CNN who said that like cloth masks don't do anything, but you go and see all the masks that people are wearing on like airplanes or in arenas or at restaurants or wherever they're making you make that, wear them. And very low percentage of them are N95 masks that are the ones that are helpful. So everybody yeah. else is just wearing these things that don't seem to like matter. And so it's, it's just, you know, we we need to be able to question these things. That's, that's my take to what you're saying, because there are absurdities in front of us. And like you're saying, I mean, how does the conventional wisdom change? It changes when outsider freaks might be a little bit onto something and might notice something. And if you don't get, if you don't let them, uh, if you don't allow them the ability to speak, then yeah, it's just, it's it's not a good thing. I think Scott's back though. I want to. I'm just curious. I'm curious what he might be saying. I'm curious what this man's take is. Plus, I just respect that he has a baby in the Avatar and he's doing double duty in it. I imagine him as a multitasker. Hey. Scott, what's up? <laughs> I was literally just washing dishes, uh, so unmuted. My wife's got my son. Uh, put him to sleep. So um, yeah, it's funny. I called in about five ten minutes ago because I actually been thinking a lot about the media paternalism that came up in your Chamath article. Uh, and then you and Ryan navigated there uh, anyway, a couple minutes ago. But first off, I guess quick aside as a sub stack, 
uh, subscriber because this actually came up too when you guys were talking about Spotify and podcasts is your Chamath article came out a few days ago. I actually subscribed to All In, so listened to it when it came out and knew some blowback was coming. But going back to the Substack point, just wondering how you feel about this. So I, uh, you know, subscribe, get all your articles. But now that I know that a good chunk of them are coming out on podcasts and I probably consume, you know, four to five hours of audio a day, I'm now waiting to read your articles a lot of times, anticipating that a podcast or a narration is forthcoming a few days later. Mm. Uh, Just curious how you think about, like, if you've thought about that dynamic, does it matter? I know you, I like kind of, I don't participate super actively on the threads, but I like reading the comments from from other subscribers. So anyways, if you don't have any thoughts on that. No, I, I think, and it will be yeah. the last last one because Ryan's on a different time zone than I'm on. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, I just wanted to provide an additional service uh, for people who subscribed because ultimately I have to justify the payment. And uh, I was fortunate that the last thing that I did before things went crazy and the pandemic started was go into a studio and narrate uh, the victory machine. And I, look, I'm not saying I'm the greatest narrator ever, but if I hadn't had that experience, I would feel diffident about doing it. Right. I would go, well, what am I doing? You know, th- the ability to just go through the process and to be told to do it this way or to do it that way. And then to have a narration that seemed like people liked uh, gave me the sense of, OK, this is something this is something that I can do and I can hold myself up in this very garage and I can read the article. And there are people who consume it that way. Now, uh, I charge for the majority of those. Um, you know, I, I, I want to maybe give out a few more free samples, but, uh, yeah, to what you're saying, I think the challenge for me, it's a little difficult schedule wise is just doing the narration as quickly as possible after the article. Uh, are you insinuating that it should come out, uh, contemporaneously? Is no, no, it, I guess yeah. I, I'm not insinuating anything, uh, obviously, because you more accusing like... me of something. Right now? Yeah. <laughs> I'm accusing you of providing more value to your subscribers uh people are gonna think you're a plant scott geez yeah right yeah (laughs) um no i guess like because i just am now in a you know i don't spend too much time thinking about it but i'm like hey this article comes out looks interesting get the email do i read it now or do i wait for the podcast because i've actually a few times like especially the, the jordan one which i really enjoyed i read and then listened to um but now I'm in this weird position where I'm like, okay, do I just wait for the the narrated article or maybe it doesn't come and then I, mm. it, do I remember to go back and read it? You know, like the, nothing, yeah, nothing problematic. Think, it's just like the things I think through that, you know, I, 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 apo- I, I apologize to Ryan for this customer service to the House of Strauss <laughs> Substack break. But yeah, I think it's my intention to narrate all of them unless it's a very brief one-off blah, blah, blah kind of post. So that should be forthcoming. Um, I should narrate it tonight. You've given me the proper pressure to narrate it tonight. After this call in this very garage, which is my studio, 
I will uh, narrate today's Colin Cowherd article. And I'm hoping that the narration also gives me a better understanding of what, what I'm writing and where to go with themes and there's a benefit beyond it. But yeah, man, I'm a one-man band. I, I uh, Any way I can provide value in a way that's not too time-consuming, uh, I'm happy to do it. And I'm glad that you're getting some out of it. So I'm glad if any of you listening tonight, uh, and that includes, oh, I shouldn't say tonight, but some people are going to listen to it later. Hey, I'm just glad that you guys get something out of it. I've heard great things about Ryan's appearances. Ryan, great stuff yet again. Is there anything, anything that you should plug for us? Uh, no, just read my stuff at the post. Um, doing, I don't know, eight stories a day. So hopefully something in there interests you and hope to do this again soon. I appreciate your having me. Oh, of course, man. Anytime you guys, thanks again. Be back. I am so happy to be back from the whole COVID. And really, I should have presented myself as an expert on the whole thing now when we were talking Rogan and Neil Young. I, I, you know, I had it personally. How could anybody dispute my knowledge of this illness? I know it forwards and backwards. And uh, I will be pontificating in the future audit. Maybe not. All right. See you, everybody. Good night. Bye.